Charles Spurgeon said, I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And that is one of my favorite quotes because it gets to the crux of what we're going to talk about this morning. And that is, why in the world would a holy God become a baby? Good morning. I haven't been here in a while. Um, if you're new, my name's Abby Todd. Um, if you don't know how to spell that or pronounce it, some people have been here for six months and still don't know how to pronounce it, so it's fine. Um, it's good to see your smiling faces. I've missed y'all. Um, it was good to roll into the parking lot and see just everybody, and I missed Willie's massive truck looking like it wanted to devour my car. Um, <laughs> I just miss y'all's faces, and it's good to be back. Um, I missed last week. I don't know if you all are aware, uh, but I went to Kentucky for Thanksgiving. Uh, got to see my grandma. Uh, grandmother went home after Thanksgiving dinner, and exactly one month to the day after we buried Granddad, um, she collapsed and, and had a heart attack and, and went to be with the Lord. Uh, so that was it. Was a good Thanksgiving until then. Um, and uh, it was it was a hard. That's quite kind of why I stayed a while. Like, there was no sense in just coming back. Um, and so I I performed both of my grandparents' funerals in a month, um, which is which is hard. It was a hidden blessing because I got to be with Dad uh, when Grandma died and um, got to mourn with my father. Um, hadn't seen my dad cry since Mom died, and so it was very. Don't, Dad doesn't cry, so um, it was a uh, it was a good time. It was one of the first times in my life that I've been Dad's son, but I've also been I've played the pastor too. Um, never never done that before. Um, Paul says in First Thessalonians four thirteen that we do not mourn as those who have no hope, and I'm not mourning over Grandmother D, thinking that she is in any way in despair right now. <clears throat> Um, she is definitely with the Lord. Which brings me to the theme of our text this morning. What, what does it mean to be with God? If you'll turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This morning we're going to read about one of Jesus' most famous names, Emmanuel. We sang it this morning which of course means God with us. But what does it mean when the, the prophet Isaiah says God is with us? We're beginning our Advent series this morning, which will lead us all the way to Christmas Eve. Advent, if, if you're unaware, uh, means arrival or coming. Of God. So when we celebrate Advent, we're, we're celebrating the arrival or the coming of God to earth in Christ. We are preparing, in a sense, for the miracle of Christmas. So when we say Advent, we actually have a double meaning there. There's actually, it means the coming of the infant Christ to earth to save His people. But it's also, we're also looking forward to the second coming of Christ to judge the nations and to call His church to glory. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. And the Holy Spirit says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, for many of us, we have read this holy text countless times. We pray that by Your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that conceived the infant Christ, You give us fresh eyes this morning. Teach us what it means. Teach us the great news and the miracle of Emmanuel. Oh, what magnificent grace. Oh, what imaginable mercy You have shown us in taking flesh, becoming a slave, and in Christ dying for criminals. Father, let our hearts rejoice this morning in the truth that God became man. And all these things we ask in your Son's name. Amen. There's a word that I'd like everyone in this church to know and to hide in your heart. It's the word that best summarizes what took place on Christmas. It's the word that the church has historically used to describe exactly what happened 2,000 years ago, and that's the word incarnation. I used to think that was a Catholic word. It's not. Latin, carne, is Latin for flesh or meat. So, for example, if you go to, I used to go to Taco Bell and order carne asada, I was getting a taco with meat in it. Okay, so therefore, incarnation means to enflesh or to take flesh. God incarnated. Jesus is God incarnate. God became man. God took on flesh. That's what the angel of the Lord is preparing Joseph for. He's saying, Joseph, the God you worship, the God of your ancestors, the God who created you is growing inside of Mary's tummy. Imagine that. It is my prayer that this news is no less astounding to us today than it must have been for Joseph 2,000 years ago. And we're going to talk more about that. There are a lot of things in Scripture. Scripture is a very... The Bible is a very reasonable book. Things make sense. But there are some things, some big points in the Bible we're never going to plumb the depths of, and this is one of them. One of them is, how does God's sovereignty and human freedom come together? How does God three and one? This is another one. How can Jesus be fully God and fully man? Here's the miracle of Christmas. On Christmas, the eternal Son of God put on humanity and became a human being. First part of verse 18 says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, stop, that word for betrothed is not like our word for being engaged. 
It's different. In ancient Judaism, betrothal or engagement usually took place at the age of 12 or 13. So, we don't know exactly how old they were, but we can really deduce this. Mary and Joseph were young. Does that kind of... Is that kind of radical to hear? Did you, did you picture some 30-year-olds walking with the donkey? You know, No. They're young. So Mary and Joseph, as, as being youngsters, being betrothed, in Judaism, first century Judaism, after courtship and completing a marital contract, the couple was considered married. However, after a year, typically before they consummated their union, before... Um, they shared the marriage bed. They actually spent a year apart where the woman was actually still in her father's home. During this time, the marriage is not yet consummated in sexual union. However, she is legally his wife. So betrothal in ancient Judaism is the legal equivalent of marriage. And to absolve that union is divorce. That's why it says in Scripture that Joseph wanted to quote-unquote divorce Mary quietly. And it calls, him, calls her his wife, but yet they haven't shared the marriage bed together. That may be confusing for anybody who caught that, but for us who understand the times, we understand that even though they had not shared the marriage bed yet, they were husband and wife in the eyes of Jewish law. Talk about like a rough first year to find out that your wife is pregnant, but you haven't really, we're going to get to that. Let's continue. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So this child named Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's to be born of a virgin, and the result will be a Savior named Jesus, fully God, yet miraculously, somehow, will also be fully man. This person coming out of Mary is going to be a God-man. In order for God to be with us, He had to become one of us. The Son of God was incarnated. The miracle of Christmas is that God didn't wait for us to come to Him. He came to us, church. He didn't just give us a path to enlightenment. He didn't just come down, give His law, and let us figure out the rest. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. God became a helpless child to lower class peasants. He was born under the law that He gave, underneath the moon and the stars that He created. He sullied Himself with skin, with hunger, with fatigue, with tragedy, with temptation, with weakness. The Lord of life subjected Himself to birth for us to liberate us from death. This is the unbelievable love of the Incarnation. A king who left His heavenly throne and became a slave. What unimaginable grace and love of our God to rule the universe He created and to kneel down and become an infant. This is why John in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says this, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He rules the world with I wonder where that came from. If Christmas is about one thing, it's about the immeasurable grace that was shown to us in Christ becoming our Passover lamb. Let's go on. Verse 19 through 20. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Imagine hearing that. A couple things about Joseph here. One thing that Matthew says and one thing that he doesn't say. It says, first, Joseph says, or Scripture says that Joseph was a righteous man. That much is obvious. I mean, I know a lot of men who if they were engaged and found out their wife was pregnant, there would at least be like a nasty Facebook post. At least. Joseph says, this says he was a noble man. He said he's going to divorce her quietly. That's a nice guy. What Scripture never calls Joseph is Jesus' father. Never in the Bible will you ever find the Bible recording Joseph as quote-unquote Jesus' dad, and the point is pretty clear. He calls Mary Jesus' mother, but at no point in Scripture is Joseph ever called Jesus' father, and the reason is pretty obvious. Jesus only has one father, and that's His heavenly Father. The fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, just theological point here, don't miss this. The fact that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit is important, and our entire salvation hinges on it. While Jesus is born a human being, He's not born like most men. He's not tainted with sin. He's conceived in holiness. Therefore, He is still perfect in every way. And that's extremely important for our hope in the Gospel because as sinners, we need a human substitute who will stand in our place and take our punishment. But because of our infinite debt before the Father, we need a substitute who can bear the full eternal weight of wrath of God. So, the Jesus is both fully God and fully man, born of Mary, yet conceived by the Holy Spirit. Only in the mind and wisdom of God could this ever occur. I believe there are very few verses in the entire Bible that so plainly and so beautifully present the mission of Jesus than verse 21. The angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The very reason that this child has come into the world is embedded in his own name. Jesus, Jesus, is Greek for Joshua. Joshua is Hebrew for the Lord saves. Therefore, just as Joshua led his people across the Jordan and into Canaan, Jesus is the new Joshua who will lead his people to the promised land in heaven. Do you see that? Do you see the symmetry in the Bible? God has a plan. That phrase, His people, is important. Jesus has a people. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. In the Old Testament, the Levitical priest would go forth on behalf of the people before God and would atone for the sins of His people. When this angel says that he will save his people, he's announcing to Joseph that this child will also be a priest, except this high priest will be from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And He will atone once and for all, not multiple times, once and for all on the cross for a new people purchased with His own blood. While it can certainly be argued that Jesus did die for the sins of the whole world, it is virtually undeniable based on the Old Testament and the language of Matthew that in the end, the blood of the Passover lamb is for His people. He will save His people from their sins. And we call this the church, those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
verses 22 through 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. To summarize the gospel in one word is virtually impossible. But the name Emmanuel comes very, very close. It is imperative for us as Christians to understand the deep meaning behind this name. What does the prophet Isaiah mean when he says, God with us? Does he mean feeling close to God? Does he mean walking with God? Does he mean being in God's family? What does Emmanuel mean? The reason this question is so important is because countless people today don't feel that God is near to them. I have folks all the time, even Christians, who come up to me and they're like, I haven't felt close to God in years. Have you ever felt like that? Have there been seasons where you're like, I, I mean, I, I know I'm, I think I'm saved, I just don't feel, I don't feel God is close to me. I think there's something in our hearts that naturally longs to be near to God, to be filled in Him. So if Jesus' name means God with us, why is it that so many people don't sense His presence with them? To answer that question properly, we have to begin not in Matthew, but in the Old Testament. What would this news have meant to a Jewish person like Joseph hearing this for the first time? Think about this. For any Hebrew man or woman, they understood that the story of the Bible begins with Adam doing what? Walking with God in the garden. What happens in Genesis 3? Adam is thrown out. He's banished. We are no longer walking with God. Imagine what that would have been like. By Genesis chapter 5, there's already one brother murdering another brother. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that humanity is so evil, God wipes them out with a flood. Saves one family. I heard some, some preacher the other day said, uh, if you, if you're, if he, he's talking to preachers. He said, uh, if you feel like you've, if you're, he says, if you feel like your ministry is unsuccessful, look at Moses. He, all he did his entire life was preach, and only his family believed him. Only one people he preserves. He destroys the rest. By Genesis chapter 11, humanity was building a tower to erect and to magnify its own name. By the end of Genesis, there's murder, slavery, betrayal, sexual immorality of every kind. By Exodus, the people of God are enslaved. Later in Exodus, God does liberate His people from Egypt, but they can't actually approach God. Only God can go up to the mountain and He tells Moses, don't let anybody touch this mountain or they'll die. He does give them a law, however, no one can keep the law, so everyone's separated from God. Later in Exodus, God's people need priests to go before them and make sacrifices and offerings. Later in the Old Testament, God's people also need prophets because they can't speak directly to God. God is behind a veil or God is in an ark. By First and Second Samuel, God's people don't want God to be their king. They want a human God or human king. The world of the Jew is a world where God can only be approached on limited terms. dictated by God Himself. God is not corporately in the hearts of His people. God is not a man. And then you have an angel coming to Joseph in a dream, appearing to a lowly carpenter, and he says that God is no longer distant. In fact, that God, who you had to approach through a veil, will be born in your wife. 
Friends, we cannot have a full biblical understanding of that name unless we hear it through the ears of a sinful Jewish carpenter named Joseph. And 2,000 years later, through the lens of the Old Testament, this news is no less precious to us than it was to him. The God who could only be approached in tabernacles and veils and arks is now the God who will walk among you and you can actually touch Him. Can you see now when people talk about being close to God or feeling God or being near God or having an experience with God and they go on and on about how they wanna, they've now felt God in their lives and never once mentioned Jesus. Can you see how the devil would rejoice in that? Hey, I just went to this revival. Man, I, oh, I was so close to God. Well, uh, tell me about it. I just, I, just, some, I just felt Him, just the music. Tell me more. Well, I, just, I mean, I just never felt just nearer to God than I do now. How? Why? If Jesus doesn't come out, it wasn't God. This, this world is looking to be near to Him and God says it's in a baby. It is only by Jesus that we sing Emmanuel. It's only by seeking Jesus that we experience the closeness of the King of Kings. It's only in Christ that we can be near Him. Think for a second about the faith that Joseph had to have. This child is not his biologically. This angel is coming to him in a dream, so he could wake up and be like, Hey, what's wrong, honey? Uh, you're never going to believe. Of course, she wouldn't be in bed with him, though. He's telling him that this child isn't his and it's conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Joseph's got to be like, I don't even know what that means. This child already has a name. He doesn't even get to pick the name. This child will save his people from their sins and apparently prophets have been talking 780 years earlier about the child that Mary's going to have. And what does Joseph do? Well, there it is. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What did Joseph do? He believed and he obeyed. Did you notice, this is just a quick point, did you notice that the Greek word for sex here? It says he knew her not. Egonoskin. In ancient Near Eastern culture, to know someone was more than just being Facebook friends with them. That word, to know, was an intimate word. Now, I didn't mean that you were necessarily having sexual relations with them all the time. But to know someone was to share a bond with them. How different that is than when we often hear today, Hey, you know the Lord? Oh yeah, I was baptized when I was six. No, do you know the Lord? Oh, yeah, I pray. No, 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 no. Do you know Him? You know how the Bible says you know Jesus? You know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know the beauty and the joy of a God whose name is Emmanuel. There are countless souls in church and outside of church today who think that God's always been with them. He's their buddy. They treat God like He's the tooth fairy. Or He's their life coach. That's not the God of the Bible. You're not born with God. We are separated from God naturally. Your bent is to go against God. He's the I Am. He's the burning bush. He's the Holy of Holies. And this God 
The angel is announcing the same God who is so holy that only a priest could go once a year behind the veil. This same God whose mountain would torch anyone who touched it is now the same God who is now in a barn and is a child. I just, I want to read this quote. John Newton, who is a former slave trader turned pastor who happened to write the hymn Amazing Grace. He wrote a sermon called Emmanuel, and this is, this is the last little paragraph. As fallen creatures, God is against us, and we are against Him. The alienation of our hearts is the great cause of our ignorance of Him. We are willingly ignorant. The thoughts of Him are unwelcome to us, and we do not like to retain Him in our knowledge. Guilt is the parent of atheism. A secret foreboding that if there be a God, we are obnoxious to His displeasure, and that if He takes cognizance of our conduct, we have nothing to hope but everything to fear from Him, constrains many persons to try to persuade themselves that there is no God, and many more to think, or at least to wish, that if there be a God, He does not concern Himself with human affairs. What a proof is this of the enmity of the heart of a man against Him. But this enmity, these dark apprehensions are removed when the Gospel is received by faith, for it brings us the welcome news that there is forgiveness with Him, that God is reconciled in His Son to all who seek His mercy. In this sense, Messiah is Emmanuel, God with us on our side, no longer the avenger of sin, but the author of salvation. This child in Mary's tummy, this Jesus, was born to die on our behalf as our substitute, to purchase our forgiveness with His own blood, to receive the wrath of the Father so that we could have eternal life, to rip the veil standing between sinners and a holy God and to bring us back to Him. In this child, God is to unite Himself to humanity forever in spirit and in flesh. Think about this. God has become like us so that He could give us His Spirit and that we could become more like Him. In the most intimate way. He's not just among us. He's not near us. He's not just hanging out with us. In Christ, God has promised to wed Himself to us, His church, forever. And so I wanted to end with this. This Christmas, there are millions of men and women who haven't so much as walked inside of a church. They've spoken to others in ways they know is unacceptable to their Creator. They've sought after things and money and people that haven't satisfied them. They've treated others with contempt and malice. They are plagued with a sense of guilt and shame for the way that they've lived. And they don't want to come to a church because they know in their consciences that their life before God is but a filthy rag. They feel like God is an ominous, overbearing judge who sees them for who they really are. They feel like they're a fraud when they come and, and hang out with Christians because they're a hypocrite, but no one knows it, but God does. They feel like they're not welcome among righteous people, much less a righteous God. But friends, such are the very souls that Jesus came to die. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
This God took flesh and humiliated Himself so that He could seek the lowly and the humble. For the depressed, for the divorced, for the addict, for the hypocrite, for the imposter, for the undeserving, for the outcast, for the unchurched. The good news of Christmas is that for those who seek Jesus with all their heart, the vast and omnipotent God and Creator of the universe is now with you. You are no longer an enemy. You're no longer a stranger. You're no longer an outcast. Why? Because Christ became the enemy. He became the stranger. He became the outcast because of His great love for you. What unceasing joy we have to know that if you've been ostracized by your coworkers, if you've been denied by your own family, if you don't feel at home amongst your own people, if you've been left by your own spouse, if you've been abandoned by those who call you friend, in Christ, the good news is that the King of kings and Lord of lords is with you and He's with you for the rest of eternity. I pray that this church would receive... I, 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 I pray that the more mature that this church becomes, the stronger we become in our faith. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't bow to this lie that says that the better Christians we become, the less immature and the less raggedy and the less unbelievers we have. I want the unbelievers coming! That's what Christmas is for! In this life, I've felt alone. In this life, I've felt betrayed. I have been left behind. And now, this angel is announcing that the God who is to be my judge and my executioner is now my friend and my Savior and has become a child so that He can stand in my place and be my substitute under the Father's wrath. There is no greater love than this. That is the love of Christmas. There's no more awesome grace than the God who is Emmanuel. we got to live in that name. you got to believe in that name. That name is the essence of Christmas. It's the, name, the essence of the Incarnation. It's the essence of salvation. God became dirty. I, I, I had a seminary professor describe, he says, don't ever, he said, don't ever give an analogy for the Trinity because it's, it's always heretical. He said, but I've got one that's pretty close to the Incarnation. He's like, imagine your dad gave you a new Mercedes. And then he said, um, but before you can get it, he's just going to take it and like cake it with like a thousand pounds worth of mud and put it all over your car. That's what Jesus did. See, the car doesn't stop being the car. It's just caked with something else. At no point did the Son of God stop being God. He just added humanity. It was humiliating to Him. What, what, what worse would it be for an infinitely holy and vast and righteous and loving God to become a peasant? And He did it for us. This morning, if you have not confessed that you are an enemy before God, separated from Him, if you've never repented of your sins and acknowledged that your heart stands opposed to Him, for the good of your soul, please today confess that Jesus is Lord and that you need Him for salvation. Because believing, professing you're a Christian today, 
means going up to someone and saying, my God was born in a barn for me. That's pretty humble. That is the only way to recognize how much He loves us and to understand the links that God has gone to be with us. Let's believe in that gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are so good to us. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul says that 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 humility that Jesus showed is the humility that we are to imitate in our lives. That we're to empty ourselves as He emptied Himself. Father, let the miracle of the Incarnation remind us of that deep, deep love. This Christmas, let us not celebrate simply in movies and Christmas carols. Let us worship You by remembering what it would take for You to take flesh and walk among us. Father, thank you for that gospel. All these things we ask in your son's name. Amen.